sweet. Okay, um, yeah, today we are actually preaching through two books. Yes, <laughs> Obadiah and Jonah. Now, Obadiah is the shortest Old Testament book in the Old Testament, hence the first sentence. <laughs> and, uh, and it would have worked really well uh, for me if we just preached Obadiah today. I think I dropped out. And, and I'm not coming back in. Let's put this over here. Move it around. I don't know. Shall I, gra shall I grab that other microphone? Expose myself when... Oh, is everything gone? Oh, there we go. Okay. Might have to start again. <laughs> Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, and it could very well have been the shortest sermon in our series as a result. And it would have maybe helped me because I ran a marathon this morning. And so I'm not particularly energetic. Okay? Don't let uh, all these jokes fool you. Um, but anyway, we are going to do Obadiah and then we are going to uh, look at Jonah. Okay? So Obadiah is a common name apparently. Uh, Back in those days, clearly, it means the one who serves Yahweh, as every good prophet's name should be, okay? And uh, this can't be the Obadiah that is spoken of in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verses 13 to 16 there, uh, because this particular book seems like it's written after Jerusalem's fall. That account happened before, um, and so around 586 B.C., so it's likely also written before 553 B.C. because it's still before the Babylonian campaign that was actually done against one of the stars of the show in Obadiah, which is the, uh, a nation called Edom. Okay. So the way that this letter rolls, clearly things have not happened to Edom yet that we know eventually happened. Um, and this will make sense in a moment because we are going to watch just the Bible Project summary of this. Okay, so uh, the final comment is that this was probably written in Jerusalem. Uh, and so before I keep talking about Obadiah, you guys can have your eyes on the screen and let's see what the Bible Project has to say about summarizing this book for us. The book of the prophet Obadiah. This is the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham, who with Sarah had their son Isaac, who with his wife Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelite cities and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. 
Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation. Literally, as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically, they truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this, the day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This first is a hinge piece and it links the first half of the book to the second half where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord but not only for Edom, he widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image, of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew the word Edom, or Edom, is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. But as in all the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. Specifically, remember the conclusion of the two books that came right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Joel had painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. He said that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humbled themselves and called upon him would be delivered. And in the conclusion of Amos, he said that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by my name. And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and then Amos to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all of the nations. And so the book concludes with a very hopeful future. God says he's going to restore his kingdom over the new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant. And then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and nations around Israel. And so this little book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness that we're seeing in the prophets. The ancient pride and betrayal of the people of Edom becomes an example of the greater human condition, all of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world. But there's hope, Obadiah says. Edom's downfall points to the day when God will deal with evil in our world, but also bring his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. Man, I love these guys. <laughs> Such a good job. And can you see, I mean, as you probably would have uh, connected over the weeks, by the way, we will end the series just before Advent in the book of Malachi, which is perfect. It's like just before we 
So, you know, that wasn't my orchestration. That's, that's the sovereign hand of the Lord. Um, but that's also to encourage you that this series will eventually come to an end. Okay, some of you are thinking, when? When will it come to an end? But I love just how you, you, need, you need to read these minor prophets, you know, the, the major uh, prophets, the historical books. You need to read them in, in the context of the grand narrative. Even here, we see there's a throwback to uh, Jacob and Esau. You know, so like Genesis is such an important uh, a book for us uh, to see that actually that story keeps continuing. And actually, if you just read Obadiah on his own, you're going to be like, what, what is happening here? Well, you know, it's like it's just 24 verses that make no sense to it. But if you know the backstory, uh, it helps you. And of course, then also, you know, the future comes into focus, as they said. So, yeah, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau is actually the Edomites. And uh, they are one of Israel's neighbors. You heard there, they're in the southeast uh, uh, kingdom. Um, and they should have assisted their brothers during the Babylonian crisis. That's what they should have done. But we saw there what they actually did was they sided with, their, with the foreign invaders and they even took advantage of Israel's misfortune. That's the kind of big issue, the big sin that Obadiah is attacking here. And, you know, as you read this book, and maybe, uh, maybe the people in that moment, they could have thought to themselves, does act- Israel actually have a future? Because this is how bleak it is. It's not just that our enemies are invading us, but even our neighbors, and, and more importantly, our brothers, they are not on our side. It's like a pretty bleak picture. Like, have you ever felt like that? Where you're like, man... The whole world is against me. And then the people that you thought would be on your side, where you, there's like a connection, a special connection, even they don't help you. In fact, they, don't, they not only don't help you, in other words, they fold their arms and they're sort of apathetic towards it, but they actually go out of their way to capitalize on your misfortune. I don't know if that's ever happened. That's kind of the, 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 the story over here. So it's pretty bleak. And as we keep reading, you know, towards the end of this book, we see that isn't the case that actually God has not abandoned them, that he's not indifferent to this terrible scenario where enemies and neighbors slash brothers uh, are taking advantage or are, are, are against Israel. No, the second of the book tells us there's a day of the Lord, and as, as before, those that raise their hand against God's people will stand ju- before, before him and will receive justice. Um, so uh, Zion or those in Zion will be safe. The, door, the Lord has not forgotten but I, I want to just, you know, because it's a short sermon and we have another one coming, uh, I want to just pull one thing out. You know, Jacob and Esau, they were brothers. Verse 10 and verse 12, that's actually the language that is used in Obadiah, uh, speaking about Edom, that they are brothers of Israel. Israel and Edom are more than just neighbors, more than just neighbors. And I, I can't help but think about, you know, how uh, that is what God wants for everyone. You know, Jesus, when he talked about loving your neighbors, ultimately, it is so that neighbors can become brothers and sisters. Like the idea of loving your neighbor is not just to stop at that, but to trust that actually in loving them, like you love yourself, that they would come to know the love of God and be brought into family, be adopted in, so that they move from being your neighbor to being your brother. That's what God wants. And so clearly, if that's how God wants us to live, then yes, he must frown upon this scenario where neighbors, brothers, literally, you know, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, are are against one another. He must frown upon that. 
And we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, but more than that, to see ultimately that neighbors become brothers and sisters as we invite them into a relationship with God through Jesus. You know, I, um, the, the ideal is obviously that when a brother is down or when a sister is down, you can't, don't kick them. You know, like everybody can agree with that one. That, and that's what, it, that's what Edom did. They kicked their brother when he was down. And uh, it's, it's amazing even thinking about the confession moment today when, uh, when uh, uh, Corey talked about when we admit our weaknesses and we confess our sins to a brother or a sister, the ideal would not be that person taking advantage of your weakness, right? That wouldn't be the ideal. The, the, they, not for them, you tell them you're down and then they go, all right, just stand still because I want to kick you. Like we don't kick our brothers and sisters when, we da- when we're down. And yet that is what Eden did. And I, and I was just reminded of our one another charter. This is, the, this is sort of the, the guidelines. I wouldn't say guidelines. They're board, they borderline commands the scriptures give on how we ought to treat one another. And one of them is confessing our sins uh, to one another and with one another. But there's so much more that includes the opposite of kicking each other when we're down. That actually when we're down, we come alongside and we, we lift one another up. We are anti-Edomites in that sense. And Jesus enables us to do that. Why? Because actually Obadiah does not only fit into the bigger story historically, but actually the Bible describes Jesus as an elder brother, as an older brother. And so what the Edomites failed to to be to Israel, Jesus succeeded, not just with the nation of Israel, but with all nations. And so when we think about the day of the Lord that's being prophesied, that one day all nations will be in this restored kingdom, it is because of Jesus' elder brotherness, other, again, different to how the Edomites were. That's why you and I uh, can be here today. Because when we were down, oh my friends, and the Bible describes us being pretty down, lost in you know, sin and rebellion, running from God. You know, pin that one because we're getting to Jonah in a moment. <laughs> when we were down, in desperate need, our elder brother came to rescue us. Isn't that, isn't that such good news? That he, he acted in the total opposite spirit of the Edomites. And you know, we were actually enemies of God. So yes, the enemies, the Babylonians invaded eventually, and the Edomites, the brothers, took advantage of that. But you and I were actual enemies of God. That's how the Bible describes the state that we were in before we were rescued by our older brother, Jesus. And that is our story. Our story is that actually our older brother didn't kick us when we were down. In fact, our older brother was kicked on that cross. You know, he was brutally tortured. He endured being taken advantage of so that you and I can be free from judgment. That's just such good news, you know. So anyway, that's, that's pretty much the only point I wanted to bring out from Obadiah. And I hope you're encouraged by that. I thought maybe we should take a break, have a cup of coffee, and come back to Jonah. But maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't. Erin laughs because she's like, I'm on the coffee team. What, are you, what the heck are you asking me to do? <laughs> okay, so Obadiah, close that book, turn the page, Jonah. Okay, 
Let's eyes on the screen. This is a little longer because Jonah is a little longer in terms of chapters and verses. So let's, uh, let's watch. The book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet. Rather, it's a story about a prophet a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. 
The storm subsides and they end up fearing the God of Israel and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him. And he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. 
He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. Mm, that's a goodie. That is a goodie. So yeah, Jonah is the bad guy. He's the bad guy. And I mean, I don't know, for many years even, uh, you know, when I was younger, the the bible story you know that we are so you know when we tell our kids the story about jonah we're always saying you should be like jonah you should uh, not obey god first time but obey or, or but don't obey him second time you should obey straight away is something we say to our kids um and uh you know we basically glorify that moment when jonah you know in the fish sort of repents and then uh, goes to nineveh and we're all like yay he's the good guy again but actually, nothing's changed in terms of his heart, and his actions are so obvious. You know, and that's, that's one of the things we're always trying to even teach our children. You know, we, we always say, well, what's, what's underneath? What's, what is underneath the surface? Because you could do all the right things. You know, um, he was basically saying, fine, you know. Uh, he was, like, like often, we, you know, you'd say, say to your child, I want you to, sit down and they're like no i don't want to sit down and then they sit down and they fold their arms and they're obeying you and they're like i just want you to know that in my heart i'm standing up you know <laughs> and that's kind of what's happening so it's like jonah isn't a great example he actually isn't that sort of cute little bible story uh, or at least the outcome of the bible story the point that we might be accustomed to that's really not what's going on here and as you read this you know book chapter two uh, you know end to end it becomes apparent obviously with a little bit of help from from guys like uh, the Bible Project. So, yeah, after, even after obeying, his heart has not changed. And, uh, you know, so many prophets quote actually the words of Exodus 34. So, again, there's this throwback to, to you know, the beginnings of the Bible where God describes himself as gracious and forgiving and merciful and compassionate. And uh, the problem is Jonah believed it, but he didn't like it. Like, he, he, he did believe it. That's why he didn't want to preach to these people, because of what God said about himself. And he was like, I know it's going to happen, so let me, let me try and get out of this. And you know, often we are just like Jonah. We are okay with God saving the semi-sinful. But the saturated sinners, no, 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 we're not happy with that. You know, if, and, and the, the place he went to Nineveh, you know, capital of Assyria. These were bad people. Like, 
chat to Ryan. He knows a bit of the history. And like he can tell you some horror stories in terms of what that, how, that, how that nation rolled. And so in one way, it's understandable why, why uh, Jonah might feel this way. Because these are people that literally hate them and his nation. Um, but you also have to stop and go, isn't it incredible that God would send someone again? And I, mean, I think between Obadiah and Jonah, there's this amazing, par- you know, uh, para- not parallel, but like there's some opposites going on here. You know? uh, th- this is a nation that, that hates them. They are not brothers to Israel. They are enemies to Israel. And God is sending someone to them so that he might save them. He might pluck them from their their uh their sin i think that's absolutely amazing and and so often we could be like jonah where we're like there's some people that like you know i'm okay with a neighbor i'm okay with a neighbor love my neighbor but my enemies and this is what jesus asked of us this is what jesus said that we should love our enemies this is god living that out pre-jesus is preaching loving his enemies Sending a prophet to proclaim good news to them. And yet we find ourselves often not happy with enemies coming to faith. Or we're not comfortable with that. Or we avoid enemies. Because it's easy to go to a neighbor, someone that is sort of, you know, kind of nice, you know. That's, that's, that's not, not necessarily hostile towards you. Or, or maybe we even see people, they've done terrible things either to us or to others. And we just go, they, I can't even imagine that they would want to hear. But I, honestly, I don't even think they deserve hearing. They deserve forgiveness. And yet I'm reminded of Jesus' words as well, where he said that those who have been forgiven much, loves much. Actually, often the most passionate followers of Jesus are the enemies of the cross that come to faith. You know, Jesus told that story when, you know, a sinful woman, you know, washed his feet and was weeping. And everybody's like, oh, if he knew who touched her, this is the worst of the worst in society. And again, he was with neighbors. He was a Pharisee, you know, put up a meal for him, pretended to be kind and nice. And he, and he confronted that Pharisee and he said, you know, when I walked in, you didn't even wash my feet. That's custom. That's what you do to neighbors. But this woman, she's not stopped washing my feet with her tears since I've come in. You didn't put oil on my head, which is custom for what you do to neighbors. But she poured all this expensive perfume upon me. And he, and he was making the point. He says, why? Because those who have been forgiven much, loves much. And that's what we see in this area here. The sailors are the best repenters and the best worshipers of God. Not Jonah. Nineveh are the best worshipers of God because they probably experienced that kind of grace and mercy. They've experienced God's mercy. The worst sinners become the best followers of God. And yet we sometimes go, ah, no, not me, someone else, perhaps. And I find it fascinating that, you know, it was a really bad message that he preached. You know, five words in Hebrew. No details. And that should be an encouragement to you as well, because maybe you can overcome the enemy fear. You might go, okay, fine, but then you get the, the other excuse, hey, which is like, I don't have a PhD in theology. Like, I don't have, I don't have I, I'm not eloquent, and I can't explain the gospel, and you might think that, you know, maybe you only have five words. And, and for me, this again, this shows me that ultimately God is the one that draws people. You obey him. Again, you be the mailman. You deliver the letter. 
<laughs> you deliver the good news and, and see what God does. I mean, that happened here in Nineveh. Not the best sermon, but people re repented because God draws people. God softens hearts. That's the story in the Old Testament. Here's someone, he hardens their heart. There's someone, he softens their heart. What he softens, no, nobody can harden. And what he hardens, nobody can soften. So God is behind your efforts. He is, he is the one at work to, in the lives of the people that he's called you to speak to. Even a person like an enemy, God can soften their heart. He can call them. He can draw them. This is what theologians call irresistible grace. There is no chance. If God has got your number, five-word sermons will convert you. Okay? It's such, isn't it good news for you and me who are called to be heralds of good news? Absolutely. And so there is Jonah, you know, with this problem that he felt superior. And so maybe that's another problem. Maybe you're like afraid of enemies. You don't, you'd rather go to your neighbors. Your second excuse is like, ah, I'm not eloquent. But maybe it's just a case of like, listen, I am genuinely better than other people that you're asking me to speak to. Because this is what he did. He felt like he was better than uh, the Ninevites. You know, it's literally, he's literally the opposite of, of, uh, of Edom in uh, Obadiah, you know, uh, and he felt like he is superior to God as well because he felt that he had a better grip on the character of Nineveh than God himself did. He was a better judge of character and actions than God. So he raised himself up. He felt superior to the Ninevites and he felt superior to God. That's a terrible thing to be because that kind of pride, the scripture says, comes before a fall. And so he has this tantrum. He has a couple of tantrums, actually, hey. <laughs> but the, 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 my favorite one is at the end of the book when the shade was taken away from him, which was really just God giving an object lesson to, to Jonah about what was really going on in his heart and what was really going on in this scenario. Because he felt in that moment more deserving of shade than he felt those people were deserving of salvation. Like that was highest on his priority there. Because he was sitting on that hill, he was waiting, he was probably hoping you know, for some fireworks. He was looking for a show. He was like, man, how's, how are these people going to go? And like explosions, you know, lights, smoke. And his heart is exposed actually in those three cries that he makes when he asks God to just kill him. <laughs> you know, the first one, he, you know, he's like, let me die, jump over the... the, um, the you know, throw me overboard. But then also in the city... It's where he asked God just to make him die and then under the tree as well. And this is a great pointer to for us to sort of figure out what is that thing that you and I have that is so important that is keeping us from obeying God to the fullest extent. What is our idol, the thing that we actually are worshiping? You know, so for Jonah, he was not really worshiping God. He was, he was actually worshiping himself he felt superior in many ways you know uh, and his comforts he didn't want to be uncomfortable to go to this, his enemies and he didn't want to be uncomfortable to sit in the heat you know um, and I want to just read one verse out of Jonah this is the so-called repentance uh, uh, prayer that he prays but he does you know throw in a couple of truths in there and one you can find in chapter 2 he's in the belly of the fish and he says this in verse 8 and 
verse 9, but verse 8 is what I want to focus on. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. And so maybe there was a moment in Jonah's heart where he realized, because I mean, he's, he's not an idol worshiper. He's actually quite proud of the fact that he's not an idol worshiper. He worships Yahweh. He's just said to them, the God who made the heavens and the earth and the water that's kind of you know, storming around us. He's proud of the fact that he's not an idol worshiper. And yet, he's saying those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Ultimately, Jonah was a little idolater, I believe. And so two lessons. That's what I want to sort of throw out and then, um, and then we can conclude. The one is that the eternal destiny and state of someone else should always be more important than your comforts. I think there's a little bit of that going on in Jonah's life, like the opposite of that. Like comforts were very important. To be comfortable was very important to him. I'll say that again. The eternal destiny in the state of someone else should always be important than your comforts. I listed kind of three things that might make you uncomfortable. The fact that they're enemy, the fact that you don't really know, um, uh, you know your gospel too well, or, or you feel like you can't elo- eloquently uh, preach it. And then maybe lastly, you know, the discomfort of having to sort of preach beneath you. You feel like you might be superior in some, in some way to others. And the lesson we see here is that actually the eternal destiny, because God ultimately you know, makes a point to Jonah driving this home, that someone else's eternal destiny, the, the, the state of their soul, should always be more important than your comforts. I just want to stop for a moment, and um, this is, I don't want to sound boastful or anything, but I, I want you to know that in our family, with Tan and I, this is something that we wake up most days preaching to ourselves. Like, just to be honest, moving here to Canada has meant that our kids are without family quite often. Not quite often, mostly. <laughs> uh, they don't have cousins, they don't have grandparents nearby. Um, no old friends nearby that we have. No sunshine, at least not much of it, you know. They say warmth. I mean, the sun does shine, but it somehow is broken in the winter. I don't know. It's like it's light, but it's not warm, okay? Uh, there isn't a shared history. Like, I didn't grow up eating your cereal, and you didn't grow up eating my cereal. You know, didn't watch the cartoons on the TV that I watched. Like, there's, 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 there's some gaps in our, in our history. We miss certain foods. We actually have a very long list of things that, that, that we miss. We really do. But we still believe that we are called to do, and what we are called to do here, is more important than what we may go without. Like, so, so, I mean, it might sound quite shallow, and I didn't give you a long list. You know? I mean, it, some of these things are like, oh, please, you know, food. But some of these things they do really, you know, they, they, they are really costly. And it can be very easy to go, you know what? Actually, it's more important to be comfortable and to have things that I, that I can have somewhere else. And that is not the way God wants us to live. That's, that cuts across the value of mission and the value of people. Now, it may change one day, but for now, this is our reality. Actually, we believe that 
it's better to go without these things for the sake of leading and loving you and leading and loving leading you into the gta to love them you know we preached this book many years ago i think 2016 or 2015 i don't know we were still wet behind the ears rookies here in canada we called it jonah and the gta i went back to those notes and you know that that was that was like that was our heartbeat it's like yeah we we need to love the gta reach the gta with the gospel that's why ultimately our manifesto changed you know our, our, our mission statement got a little simpler and a little more focused you know to help people find and follow jesus that is still more important than our comforts so that's number one number two is if you care of that much about your comforts should god not care more about his creatures that that is that is the point he's trying to make I love that last song that we sung today. Show me who you are and lead me in your love to those around me. I mean, we literally sang what, the, what is being you know, taught yeah, in the book of Jonah. If we care a lot about our comforts, then it's just right for God to care more about his creatures who are far more important. And their eternal destinies and, their, and the state of their souls are far more important than our comforts. And I'm so thankful for Jesus, who gave up his comforts, who climbed off the throne of heaven and came and took on humanity. And we are all beneath him, just so you know. He's the king of the universe. We are all beneath him. And he came and he became one of us to redeem us, to save us. And he, you know, he didn't run from God in rebellion. He ran from God in obedience because <laughs> the Father sent the Son and the Son obeyed the Father. And he ran to us. And he didn't spend three days giving a half-baked sermon. He spent three years with his disciples proclaiming the kingdom and the gospel so that you and I can be saved. And I'm so thankful for Jesus to be an anti-Jonah. You know, Jesus did say, look, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, and he was referring to being in the belly of the fish and so on. But in many ways, Jesus is the opposite of Jonah. In every way, almost. Maybe when he said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah, he wanted people to sort of put the pieces together going that I am not like him. I'm here. I love you. And my sermons are not five words long. <laughs> and so, friends, if we are putting our comforts above God's kingdom... If it's inconvenient to help people find and follow Jesus in a way that we opt out of it because something more comfortable takes its place in our lives. We are Jonah. We are the bad guys. That's, that's, the, that's the mirror that this, uh, that this book is putting up in front of us. And so, yeah, for our commission today, and what I believe will be our commission for a season from here onwards. You know, we used to start our services online with that little video. Who are we? Who are we? Oh, yeah, who we are. Yeah, we are. Holy Spirit-empowered servants. You know, in the, and so it goes on until we end off by saying we are helping people find and follow Jesus. We are City Gates. This is who we are. And I believe that for the next season... We are not going to start our services as we used to, but we are going to end our services as a reminder that this is what God has called us to do. And, and before we take a step out of this venue to look at our priorities and our comforts and saying, who are we? We, are, we exist. We are people who help others find and follow Jesus. And oh, that's going to cost me. 
they are more important than my comforts. We, we preach that to ourselves at the end. Our manifesto, why we exist, is that, to help people find and follow Jesus. Our highest aim and our highest value is not to create a comfortable experience on a Sunday or, or, or midweek in your community groups. It's not here to play your favorite songs. And by the way, you led worship like a boss. You and your team around yeah. you today were so excellent. Yeah, let's. You know, those, those, those things do happen, but they are not our highest aim. Not our highest aim. To serve the best type of coffee. I like coffee, I promise you. We, uh, but it is not the most important thing. Or to even meet at a time that is most convenient for you or others. Our highest value, our highest aim is to help people find and follow Jesus. That is why we are here. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're hearing this. And you think, well, that's not my aim. I mean, I hear that city gates, but that's not why I'm here. Well, then this is really awkward. Because <laughs> it's not going to change. It's not going to change. And so my prayer is that actually you are arrested by what God can do in and through you. And you realize, man, I've been prioritizing other things, and I've completely ignored the most important thing. And that there would be some rearranging. And we'd love to journey with you. But if you're sitting there going, no, never, I'm not doing that. Well, maybe this is not the church for you. Maybe it isn't. And so I want to end our Jonah sermon by, uh, by all saying this out loud to, together. And we are gonna be, we're going to say this out loud together at the end. It's going to be our commission ad nauseum for some, for some time. Because I do feel like, man, we're, we're poised. To resur- we, we, we launched this, I mean, we had a couple of months and then COVID hit, you know. And I said, maybe we took a few steps backward, but we, we're going to reclaim. The years the locusts have stolen, have eaten. Hey, let me quote another prophet. We shall be restored. Okay, so remember this week, City Gates, you exist to, say it with me, help people find and follow Jesus, God bless you. You can play that video. Have a cup of coffee.